All right, you'll notice that this evening we're going to look at Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. Now, you may recall from the last time that we justified the boundaries of the rhetorical units uh, in this uh, first section of chapter 2. That is, we examined verses 1 to 7 and decided that we could divide 1 to 3 from 4 to 7. Now, does anyone recall how we suggested that 4 to 7 is a distinct rhetorical unit or distinct unit of this chapter? I can't ask Marge and... She was listening in from afar. (laughs) Yes, you'll notice that verse 4 and verse 7 have a geographical frame, that is, a bracket on a geographical place, Ashkelon, which delimits that rhetorical unit. Now, in addition to the fact that Ashkelon frames verses 4 to 7. It's at the beginning, at the end of the unit. Zephaniah also uses duplicate Hebrew words or duplicate Hebrew roots to frame this section. In verse 4, though you cannot see it in your English translation, he begins with the name Gaza, And he then follows that name of the city with a pun on the name. And that pun repeats the Hebrew consonants uh, so that he's actually duplicating the Hebrew terms in uh, the beginning of verse 4. Now, you will remember that last week we indicated that he also uses duplicate roots at the very end of verse 7. Again, you cannot see it in your English translation, but that phrase, restore their fortune, or literally in the Hebrew, as we pointed out last week, restore their restoration. He's duplicated the Hebrew word restore twice at the end of verse 7. So at the beginning of this unit, verse 4, he has a duplicate Hebrew word pattern. At the end of this unit, at the end of verse 7, he has another duplicate Hebrew word pattern. So that also supports or confirms the fact that we are uh, placing 4 to 7 as a distinct literary or rhetorical unit uh, in this uh, second chapter. Now, we'll go back for a moment just to notice that he had also used duplicate roots in verse 1. That uh, verse, verse, gather, gather, is a duplicate Hebrew uh, root, Hebrew sequence. And in verse 3, you will notice, or you may remember, that he had used the same Hebrew word root twice, the word humble and humility, derived from the same Hebrew consonants. So we notice a quite 
interesting pattern of structuring all of the units at the beginning and end of each of the sections of the first seven verse. Two Hebrew words at the beginning of verse one, T, two Hebrew words in verse three, two Hebrew words at the beginning of verse four, two Hebrew words at the end of verse seven. So one to three is obviously a unit because it begins with a double Hebrew root and ends with a double Hebrew root. Verses four to seven, obviously a unit because it begins with a double Hebrew root, ends with a double Hebrew root. All right, so we're justifying the structuring of uh, the prophecy of the, of the chapter, and we're doing it based upon how Zephaniah uses words to signal these divisions, to signal these rhetorical or literary or prophetic units, as the case may be. Any questions about that? All right, now let's keep our finger in Zephaniah 2, and let's turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 6. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 17. And when you get it, just go ahead and read it out. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord. One each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. Thank you. Now, you'll notice in that verse, number of cities. How many cities are listed there? Five. There are five cities. The so-called Philistine Pentapolis. Pentapolis. Now, I'm going to ask Abigail what a pentagon is. What is a pentagon? It is a geometric shape. I don't know how many sides it has. Do any of your brothers or sisters know what a pentagon is or pentapolis is or pentagon? Well, let me ask you this, Abigail. Do you know anything about uh, the Washington, D.C. area? Do you know anything about the Pentagon? Have you heard of the Pentagon? You've heard of, why do they call it the Pentagon? It has five sides. So, <clears throat> uh, what do you think a pentapolis is? A group of five what? There you have the penta. All right. With pentagon, you had penta five gone sides. With pentapolis, you have five what? Five cities. Good for you. You're learning Greek. Polis is the Greek word for city. All right. So the, the Philistine Pentapolis is the famous five city uh, portion of the Philistine coastline with the names listed there in First Samuel 6. Now, uh, let's take a look at our first map, which comes from the 2011 edition of the finest Bible atlas, the Carta Bible atlas. And you'll notice that the Philistine coast is outlined in a little darker shade there at the lower left of the map. Next to the Great Sea. Now, what do we call the Great Sea today? 
That's the Mediterranean. Thank you, Cheryl. All right, so next to the Mediterranean Sea is the coast. This is called the Levantine Coast, the Levant, meaning the Middle East. You may have heard the word Levant in the news recently. All right, now you'll notice the five cities of the Philistines there on the map of Philistine nation. To the right of Gaza, we have the city of Hebron. Can anyone tell me uh, a famous event surrounding the city of Hebron? We'll do a little bit of biblical geography tonight. Dan, let's try you on Hebron. Well, isn't it related to the story that we just read? No, not anything in Zephaniah. No, I mean in uh, 1 Samuel. Not really. Well, Perry, go ahead, then. Abraham. Good, very good. Abraham came to Hebron and settled there. Very good, after he had come down from Haran. All right, now, as you move north, you notice Shiloh. What do you associate with Shiloh in the Old Testament? Anyone? The tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, in fact, associated with that First Samuel 6 passage that we read, the uh, Philistines did catch the ark, capture the ark of the, of the tabernacle, and it had been stationed or kept in Shiloh. Now, in between Hebron and Shiloh, we have Jabesh. You see Jabesh there on your map? <clears throat> What's that? That's the old name, that's the early Canaanite name for Jerusalem. It was renamed Jerusalem later on, but that's the location of Jerusalem. <clears throat> now, uh, down in the lower right, uh, you'll notice kind of written on a, so- uh, on a slide uh, uh, the name Edom. Where does that come from? The descendants of Esau. And then above Edom, Moab and Ammon. <clears throat> Abigail, who are Moab and Ammon descended from? I'm picking on you, but you can yield to one of your brothers or sisters. You can defer the question. Marge? They are Lot's uh, children to his daughter. The incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. When they get him drunk and he fathers children to them, to the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now you notice there, they're under Ammon is Rabath ben Ammon. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a city there today. Do you know what it is? Well, let's ask the question this way. <clears throat> what country is in the place of Ammon today? Go ahead, Terry. Jordan. Jordan. This is the uh, nation of Jordan. And what is... What is at Rabat today? Anyone? The capital of Jordan, which is what? Amman. Amman. Yes, very good. So you see Amman, Amon and Amman. It's A-M-M-A-N is the way they spell it today. But it is on the location of ancient Rabat Amman. And so it's one of the oldest, continuously inhabited cities in the world. 
And as it was the capital of the Ammonite nation in biblical times, so it remains the capital of the Hashemite Jordanian kingdom. And is in your contemporary news, is it not? So you ought to know where it's located because it's in your current events. As we go north on the right-hand side, left-hand side of the Jordan, on what's called the Cisjordan, the right-hand side of the Jordan is a Transjordan, but on the Cisjordanian side, you go up above Shiloh and you see Megiddo. What can you tell me about Megiddo? Terry, what can you tell me about Megiddo? You've had a vacation, you're well-rested, your brain's (coughs) pumping oxygen. Very good. And uh, it was controlled by many people for off and on many battles. Is there any particularly significant battle you want to name or describe that went on at Megiddo? Well, was uh, it Hezekiah that was killed there? Not Hezekiah, but somebody is killed there. <clears throat> Who was killed there? Was it Josiah? Yeah, it's Josiah. Josiah was killed there. Who killed it? It was the Egyptian pharaoh. What's that Egyptian pharaoh's name? Ben? You need a vacation. Anyone? Nico. Yes, Pharaoh Nico. And Josiah was trying to stop Pharaoh Nico from going through that pass. And uh, Josiah paid with his life for trying to prevent him from going north. Anyway, well comment a little later on that. And then going up to the top of the map, you see Damascus. Now, who can tell me what country today is around Damascus? Syria. Once again, in your current events. So, there are nations here or cities here that are still very much in the news. I'm not suggesting that there are biblical events which are projecting their current event uh, discussions, but nonetheless, you can learn biblical geography and that will help you with your modern geography. Uh, That's my point. All right, so we see the the lay of the land with respect to the Philistines, so we'll go back uh, to our sheet. And we'll look at Zephaniah 2.4 once again. How many cities are listed in this fourth verse of Zephaniah 2? There are four. Which one from 1 Samuel 6.17 is missing? Gaps. And to the right of Abigail, who do you know from Gaps? Who was a Gittite? Goliath was from Gath. Yes. So, the famous biblical name that lived in Gath. All right, well, it's missing from Zephaniah's list. So, we're going to ask the question what happened to it, but before, happened to Gath, but before we do that, let's turn to Jeremiah. 
chapter 25, verse 20. And once again, when you uh, have it, go ahead and read it out. Jeremiah 25, 20. Thank you. All right, now you'll notice that Jeremiah's list agrees with Zephaniah's list. So Jeremiah has dropped out Gath as well. So let's date Jeremiah for a moment. Well, let's begin with Zephaniah since he's uppermost in our minds these days. How do we date Zephaniah? When did he live? And how do we know? From the time of Josiah. Good, Marge. And what are Josiah's dates? He dies in 609. That's correct. He's killed at Megiddo by Pharaoh in 609. When did he come to the throne? Ben, you usually remember this one. You really do need a vacation. Okay. I want to say 605. No, he's dead in 609, so he's not going to be there in 605. Okay, we're going backwards. Go ahead. Okay. 640. Very good. All right, so we have Josiah and uh, Zephaniah coterminous 640 to 609. We haven't tried to narrow Zephaniah's dates down any more closely than that because, for one reason, we haven't dealt with a, a much more of the data that Zephaniah gives us from within his prophecy. We'll talk about that as we go on. <clears throat> on the other hand... Uh, what are the dates of Jeremiah? Jeremiah and Zephaniah are saying the same thing about the cities of the Philistines. So, is it possible that they are also living at approximately the same time? It says the 13th year of the reign of Josiah. Yes, which would mean what? Josiah's first year is what? 640. And that's easy to uh, do your math, right? 627 or 626 is when Jeremiah is commissioned and begins to prophesy. So there's the beginning of his prophetic career, which places him in the period of Josiah's reign, same as we place Zephaniah in the period of Josiah's reign. When do we see the other side of Jeremiah's prophetic career? He goes at least until when? 586 because... Because the captivity take place and he he is he is an eyewitness and he goes down into Egypt as Ben said shortly after that. Uh, all right, so Jeremiah will extend beyond Josiah's death. We're not sure that Zephaniah extends, but nonetheless, they are both seventh century BC prophets. So by the 7th century, at least by 640, 626, Gath is gone. 
Well, what happened to it? Let's take our next map, map number 165. And as we examine this map, we're looking at a campaign of Sargon. In fact, Sargon II, if you notice the lower right-hand side of the map. Who is Sargon II? He is an Assyrian what? He is the king of the Assyrian Empire. Correct. Now, you'll notice that there are different bars marking uh, the march of uh, Shalmaneser V, his predecessor, and Sargon II, his successor. And the, the top of that a map uh, shows a, a, a arrow coming down to Samaria. Now, what is the importance of that city and that arrow coming down from the north, bringing Shalmaneser V? That is the destruction of the ten northern tribes called the kingdom of what? Israel. Israel. In distinction from the kingdom of what? Judah, which you see on your map. So why do we have Israel at the top of the map and Judah at the bottom of the map? Because there are two separate kingdoms in the 7th and the 8th century B.C. And one of them was destroyed by the Assyrians Samaria, its capital, was leveled, and the ten northern tribes were carried away into captivity in 722-21 B.C. All right, now, the other uh, line of descent coming from the north is a kind of barred line that goes down to Ekron and Gath. And you'll notice a little box out there in the Mediterranean Sea that indicates that Sargon, this is Sargon II, campaigned against the Philistine cities around 712 or 711 B.C. You'll notice on your handout that I have printed the text from Sargon's annals. Now, what are annals? Records. Records the annual record of Sargon's campaigns. How do we have uh, a copy of these records? Sargon is 700 years before Jesus. How do we have his annals? How did that come about, Terry? They are clay tablets. What do you call the language that's on those clay tablets if it's Assyrian? Cuneiform, cuneiform, okay, or Akkadian language, all right? So, the Cunean form or Akkadian language is the language of the Assyrian Empire. And it was made by using a triangular wooden stick and pressing it into clay. And then when those little lines from the stick were imprinted in the clay, then they put it in an oven and fired it and made it hard, and it became a permanent record after it came out of the oven. So that's how 
the Assyrians kept these analytic records, and obviously this was uncovered. These records of Sargon and other Assyrian kings were uncovered or discovered. Where were they discovered? When were they discovered? They were discovered in the 19th century by Sir Austin Henry Layard, famous British archaeologist. Where did he discover them? In the capital of the Assyrian Empire. What was the capital of the Assyrian Empire? Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. He discovered it in the destruction layer of the capital of the Assyrian Empire. What is the name of Nineveh today? It's gone. Mosul. Mosul. Mosul has been in your news recently, hasn't it? And so the question is whether that destruction layer that's still there, which may have more and more and more Assyrian tablets and Assyrian records, whether it will ever be excavated now. Okay, so Sargon leaves his annals. They're buried in the ground with the destruction of Nineveh when Nineveh is destroyed by the Babylonians. They're uncovered in the 19th century by archaeologists. They're translated by those who can read Assyrian, which is a Semitic language. And then they're translated into English. And one of the largest collections of Babylonian Assyrian records is in this ANET, as it's called, the Ancient Near Eastern Text. You can see the size of it. It's a massive collection of uh, documents that have been discovered by archaeologists in the last 150 years. And it is a, a valuable resource for ancient history, Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, Syrian, etc., even Jewish. All right, now, in uh, the English translation that's contained in the ANET, you'll notice on your handout, I've given you the statement that Sargon makes with respect to Gath. This is what he says. I besieged and conquered Ashdod, Gath, which he calls in Akkadian, Geimtu, I declared the gods residing therein as well as the inhabitants, booty. Now, when you declare the inhabitants of a city booty, what are you doing to them? them. You are ransacking them. What else are you doing to them? Enslaving them them and carrying them off. You are also considering them plunder, which, of course, can be executed or massacred. All right, so now you'll notice on your map 165 that this campaign, which which Sargon refers to, is probably dated about 712. Now, it's interesting that in the original of the analytic record that I just read to you, there is no date. The tablet is broken, and so we cannot place a precise date upon it. However, since he's referring to what we know he did do from other documents, we're going to suggest that what he's saying, as I have printed on that page, occurred in about 712, 711 B.C., as your map indicates. So, Gath had disappeared. Perhaps Chargon had leveled the city. He had raised it to the ground. He certainly indicates that he carried away its gods and its inhabitants as booty. And consequently, sometime near the end of the 8th century BC, 
Gath disappeared from history. And that is the reason that both Jeremiah and Zephaniah do not list Gath in their prophetic record when they refer to the cities of the Philistines. Any questions? Now, to confirm that, let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 20. In Isaiah chapter 20, verse 1, And when you find it, go ahead and read it out. In the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and attacked it, Okay, so in this uh, same campaign, as your map indicates, looking back at your map, Sargon not only captured Gath, as his annals indicate, but the Bible tells us that he also captured Ashdod, as you can see from the map. So we can date that chapter 20, verse 1 of Isaiah to 712, 711 B.C. Isaiah is providing a historical record of the campaign of Sargon, and then Isaiah will continue with Sargon II's successor, who is Sennacherib, who will besiege Jerusalem in 701 and shut up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage, as he says. All right, so we have the answer to uh, the disappearance of Gath from the list of the five cities of the Philistine Pentapolis in both Zephaniah and Jeremiah, 7th century B.C. prophets who know that in the 8th century B.C., Gath had been demolished. Gath had disappeared from history because of the Assyrian campaign of Sargon II in 712, 711 B.C. Now, let's think for a moment about the geography of these uh, four cities. You can look at either map, either uh, map 80 or 165. What direction... As you look at Zephaniah 2.4, what direction is Zephaniah using to list these cities? Very good. He's going from the south to the north. And he lists them in the order in which you would come to them if you were moving from south to north, doesn't it? They're in absolutely geographical south-north direct uh, positions, aren't they? Why? Why did he do that? Why did he move from south to north? That's the, that's the direction that the Egyptians would come. Very good. We really don't know. Okay, so we're, so we are, we are suggesting, we are uh, <clears throat> conjuring, okay? We're meditating upon this. And uh, Dan has meditated very well. What conceivably could Zephaniah be remembering if in fact he is moving from south to north because 
of an Egyptian. Okay? Wow! Another bright light. Yes. Yes. Is it conceivable that he moves from south to north with this list in his second chapter, verse 4, because he is remembering the direction by which Pharaoh Necho II moved north towards Megiddo in the campaign that killed Josiah in 609, which would then possibly place Zephaniah before 609 or after 609? It'd have to be after 609, wouldn't it? Yes, very interesting. All right, now the suggestion can't be proved, obviously, okay? But nonetheless, it is interesting to note that he follows the path of an Egyptian army or of any trade merchants that would have been coming in that direction from Egypt, and he goes exactly in the order of the cities that they would touch or uh, be nearby. And obviously, if it was a marching army, they would the, the boys would go into town, right, on their way. Okay? So the army would obviously reconnoiter in those places as they moved north. All right. Now to uh, an analysis of the verses themselves. And let's begin with the word Gaza, which we indicated he duplicates. In other words, he uses the Hebrew consonants for Gaza in this fourth verse, and then he duplicates them. First time he uses them, he's talking about the city. The second time he uses them, he's punning on those consonants. Okay? So there's an English way to get the sense of the pun, uh, which you cannot actually see in your English translation. So we'll translate it in such a way that you can catch the force of the pun. Gaza has become ghastly. Gaza ghastly. See the duplication? All right. Now, another one way we could do this, since you'll notice your New American Standard translates, Gaza will be abandoned. Abandonville, or Abandonopolis, has been abandoned. You get the punning. That is, he's actually using the curse that comes on Gaza in order to, and he's playing on the name, in order to uh, <clears throat> emphasize the curse, the irony of the curse. Now, <clears throat> Zephaniah is not the only one to do this, and this is not the only place he will do this. <clears throat> He's punning on the geographical name, okay? So, in order to capture the sense of the irony or the pun itself, I'll say Gaza has become ghastly because it's been destroyed. Abandonopolis has been abandoned because it's been razed to the ground. What's abandonopolis? Help me with that. I'm using another pun, Okay. Okay, so if, if I would translate Gaza, Abandonopolis. But why would you do that? Because it reflects the second uh, translation, the abandoned. So it would be just as legitimate for me to say Abandonopolis. <clears throat> okay, okay. So either way, you get the 
you get the force of the pun. Okay, I'm working backwards from the from the second word in the verse. Okay, now Zephaniah, as I said, is not the only one to do this. This is actually a brilliant uh, style. Uh, he's he's having fun doing this. Uh, but the first chapter of the book of Micah is full of this, punning on the names of countries and cities in order to show the irony of their destiny or destruction. You can't see it in your English versions, but it jumps out at you from the Hebrew text. <clears throat> we can make, make these approximations. The best approximation here with Gaza is Gaza is ghastly because it actually sounds the same. So it's, a, it's a nuts much better sounding pun. Uh, you get the force of it. But uh, in Micah 1, uh, he, he's, he's actually... He's actually quite remarkable. In one case, he says there's, there, there, is no, there is nothing pleasant in Pleasantville. So he re- uses the pun to reverse the name of the town or the city. All right. Now, maybe someday we'll get to the book of Micah and when we can uh, detail those puns. All right. Now, what uh, happened to uh, Gaza? <clears throat> Obviously... It is to be abandoned. When did this occur? All right, let's take our next map, which is map number 177. And the label on this map is the campaigns of Nebuchadnezzar. Abigail, what can you tell me about Nebuchadnezzar? What do you know about Nebuchadnezzar? Well, he was a very famous Babylonian king. Very good. Right, and where would I read about him in the book of the Bible? What book of the Bible would I find him uh, described most? Who did he capture? Daniel. Daniel. So, where? What book of the Bible would I look at? Judges. <laughs> Who did he capture? Daniel. What book of the Bible would I look at? Daniel. That's a softball. Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. Yes. Now, you'll find Nebuchadnezzar described in the book of Daniel. You'll also find him in the book of Jeremiah. also find him in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Nebuchadnezzar has a large place in biblical literature. All right, now, as we look at that map, we're describing Nebuchadnezzar's campaign between 605 and 601 B.C. Now... Why was he coming down, as that arrow indicates? Why was he coming down in 605 B.C.? To capture Egypt? To capture Egypt. Not quite, but he is chasing an Egyptian. Who's he chasing? Is Pharaoh Nico again? Yes, the same fellow that went up in 609 and slew Josiah on his way north. Now in 605, Nebuchadnezzar has come to meet Nico at Haran. You can see it up there, Carchemish on the Euphrates, where the two armies clash and Egypt is beaten badly and chased back south with Nebuchadnezzar on their heels. But Nebuchadnezzar 
leaves off his uh, pursuit. But he does something before he leaves off that pursuit. He goes to Jerusalem, but your map doesn't show that he goes to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem and captures whom? Abigail? Takes Daniel into captivity along with who else? Adrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So he captures Jerusalem, but the map doesn't show that. The map doesn't show an error to Jerusalem. Now, why does the map not show that? The Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar went to Jerusalem in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim. The first year of Jehoiakim is 609. fourth year of Jehoiakim is 605. The Bible says that in several places, including in Jeremiah 46. So the Bible says it, but the map doesn't say it. Because the map cuts off at 601 B.C. Yes, but in 605, they don't show an arrow for him. They do show 605, but they don't show an arrow for him going to Jerusalem in 605. So why doesn't the map show an arrow for him going to Jerusalem in 605? When the Bible says he does. Because the map wasn't made on biblical information. The map was made by... Liberals who don't believe that Nebuchadnezzar went to Jerusalem in 605. Why don't they believe Nebuchadnezzar went to Jerusalem in 605? That's right. They have not found it in the annals. It does not appear in the archaeological record. And so because it doesn't appear in the archaeological record, therefore, it's not credible. Okay, so even though I've commended the Carta Bible Atlas of the 2011 as the best Bible Atlas available... It also has some liberal predilections. So you have to keep take that in mind. You have to kind of float with the punches. But otherwise, it is a superb uh, piece of scholarship. And you won't find better maps, even though they're not in color, but you really won't find better maps than any other atlas. Okay. All right, back to the story here. We're asking about the disappearance of Gaza or the abandonment of Gaza or Gaza becoming ghastly. You'll notice that that does show on the map, and in fact, you've got a box that says that uh, Ashkelon and Gaza were probably conquered by Nebuchadnezzar in 604. Now, putting the whole story together, Nebuchadnezzar had been to Carchemish to meet Nico in 609 after Nico had killed Josiah. In 609, he did not pursue Nico back to Egypt. He let him go. Nico had gone up to meet with the last remnant of the Assyrian Empire, what we could call an Assyrian Empire in exile after the kingdom of Assyria had been destroyed and their capital had been burned. Nineveh had been burned to the ground. Nico wanted to reinforce that Assyrian remnant. He wanted to reinforce them because he wanted to stop the big bad boy on the block who was rising, namely Nebuchadnezzar, his father, Nabopolassar, and the Babylonian Empire. He tried to stop them in 609. He got beaten. Nebuchadnezzar and Nabopolassar didn't chase him. They let him go back to Egypt. On his way back to Egypt, he put Jehoiakim on the throne of Judah in Jerusalem, 609, Jehoiakim's first year. But in 605, Nico tries one more time to best Babylon on a battlefield. And so he marches up again to the pass of Megiddo. This time there's no Josiah to stop him. Jehoiakim isn't going to try it. He already knew what happened to his father. <clears throat> so he, Nico goes up in 605. He meets Nebuchadnezzar, not Nabopolassar, his father. His father is too sick to go to the battlefield that year. 
Nebuchadnezzar beats him again. This time, he chases him back to Egypt. And as he's chasing him back down to Egypt, he's saying, we're going to make that guy go back across the Sinai. You're not going to come out again. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do battle with this guy one more time. Twice is too many times. And on his way, he conquers Jerusalem by, by capturing and deporting uh, Daniel and his three friends. However, he gets news that his father has died. And he makes a mad dash across the Saudi Arabian desert all the way to Babylon in three weeks. Approximately 700 miles in three weeks. Why? In order to, in order to seize the hands of Bel, Bel Marduk, the patron god of Babylon. To seize the hands of Bel means that you take the authority of the kingdom. And he dashed across that desert in order to do that so that nobody else would take his place before he got there. And having seized the hands of Bel and been enthroned as king of Babylon in, in place of his dead father, who had died while he was on the battlefield, he marches back to Palestine. He marches back to Philistia. He marches back to Gaza, and he destroys Ashdod, Ashkelon and Gaza in 604. In other words, he already had work to do in 605 when he had to stop, go back to Babylon, and become enthroned as king and establish his position as king of Babylon. But as soon as he'd done that, he turned right around and came back to the battlefield. And so this is when Gaza and Ashkelon disappear. All right, now, um, we've already noted that that body of water uh, on the left-hand side of the Levant is the Mediterranean Sea. What's that little island, that little white island in the Mediterranean Sea? What is that place? That is Cyprus. Is Cyprus there today still? Is it Cyprus called, is it called Cyprus back in the ancient world? More or less, more or less. <clears throat> okay, what do you know about Cyprus today? Divided in half. It's a divided nation. Why, Bob? Who owns the north? Who invaded Cyprus? The Turks invaded Cyprus about 1990. Uh, don't hold me to this, but in, in the 1990s. <clears throat> and seized the northern portion. And the Cypriot patriots have the southern portion of the island. Okay. Who do you know that has his work headquartered in Cyprus? Victor Atala. And who is Victor Atala? He's the head of MRF. And what's MRF stand for? Middle Eastern Reform Fellowship. And what are they doing? They are broadcasting the gospel in the Arabic languages and the languages of all the, that region. And they're having a great deal of response. Very interesting response recently. For which we can thank God. And thank God for Victor Atala. Okay. Well, on that happy note, we'll take our break.
All right, we know what happened to Gaza. Sargon II probably destroyed it in about 712 B.C. I'm sorry, we know what happened to Gaza. We know what happened to Gaza. Nebuchadnezzar destroys it in about 604. And you'll notice from that same map, 177, that it is probably probable at that time, 604, that Nebuchadnezzar also captured Ashkelon and made it a desolation. <clears throat> Which leaves uh, uh, Ashdod and Ekron. Now you'll notice from the outline <clears throat> that I've uh, recorded a tradition uh, which is found in the Greek historian Herodotus. Now, Herodotus is a significant uh, Greek witness to events not only in Greece but in the whole ancient Near East. He talks about Egyptian history, he talks about Jewish history, he talks about Babylonian history. He mentions that Samtik I, who was Pharaoh of Egypt, <clears throat> Between uh, about 640 and uh, 612 or slightly before, uh, <clears throat> Samtik besieged Ashdod allegedly for 29 years. Now that seems a little extreme. It seems a little, shall we say, mythical. But nonetheless, <clears throat> it appears that Nebuchadnezzar did not uh, destroy uh, Ashdod. Ashdod actually fell to the Egyptians uh, sometime before Nebuchadnezzar comes on the scene. Which leaves Ekron, and this is the second name to be punned by Zephaniah. It's interesting that the first and the last names in this list of four are punned, uh, but not Ashkelon and Ashdod. So with respect to Ekron, the best way in English uh, to uh, give the feel for this irony is to say Ekron will be extirpated. Ekron extirpated. Now, you notice New American Standard says it will be uprooted. So if we start with uprooted, and Bob worked backwards, okay, this time. So we start with the word uprooted. Rootlessville will be uprooted. Now, that's not really a little translation of Ekron, but you get the flavor of it. <clears throat> so, uh, we face the question once again as to when this occurred. And if you still have that uh, map 177 in front of you, uh, <clears throat> you'll notice that uh, this campaign that Nebuchadnezzar uh, <clears throat> uh, brought into the Levant in 604 may have, in fact, uh, conquered or uh, caused Ekron to be turned upside down, even though it's not on your map. <clears throat> there is another possibility, and that's Nebuchadnezzar's campaign in 598-597 B.C. <clears throat> uh, once again, this is not in the annals of uh, the Babylonian Chronicles, so uh, we're uh, we're kind of... Uh, guessing at this, uh, we do know about the 604 Ashkelon campaign. That is in the Babylonian Chronicles. <clears throat> so the Babylonians had uh, annals, and they called them the Chronicles of the Chaldean kings. 
So why, uh, if it's not 604 and it is 598.97, why would that be a significant date? That's my point in, in bringing up 598, 597. By whom? By Nebuchadnezzar. And who does he capture in 598-97? He takes Daniel and his friends in 605. Who does he take in 598-97? Say it louder. He takes the prophet Ezekiel. Okay? So he takes Daniel in 605. He takes Ezekiel in 598-97. He may, in fact, have destroyed Ekron in that same year. So either of those two dates, we know Nebuchadnezzar is in the West, okay? Either 604, he's actually there in 605, but remember the liberals won't credit that. So he's there in 604, we know that for sure. We know he's in, in, in the West in 598 because his chronicles say that he invaded Jerusalem. And the Bible says he invaded Jerusalem in 598. And so he captures Ezekiel in 598 and takes him away. He also takes away Jehoiakim, and the queen mother. <clears throat> All right, so we know that these five cities of the Pentapolis are going to be conquered and destroyed, and one of them is gone before Zephaniah's career, and the other are gone after he prophesies. So uh, Zephaniah may have prophesied in the very narrow uh, uh, window between 609 and 604, quite possibly within that narrow a window, and he either disappears or he dies before the fulfillment of his uh, prophecies about what happens to the Philistine cities. Any questions? Yes, go ahead, Art. Why wouldn't you say that for sure he prophesied before 604 since Ashkelon fell in 604? I'm saying uh, I'm saying the window uh, which would would lead to that is sometime between 609 and 604. So yes, he does prophesy between before 604, but it's on the other side of that window. That's my point. So we we can get it maybe within that five year period. Okay. You're still you're still uh, not sure about 605 because that was just based on an illusion that we thought it might be the, the northern campaign. You know, the, the going to the north might be from. From, uh, from Nico, but we don't know. Right. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. So, so uh, I'm not denying that this is predicted prophecy, okay? But I'm trying to say, now, when is it possible that this may have happened? May, he may have uttered these prophecies. So perhaps between on the other side of 609, this should be on the other side of 609 and 604. Yes, David? In the... Uh Face-off between uh, um, battle Nebuchadnezzar and, and uh, Egypt, um, what were the constituent factors that gave the victory to Nebuchadnezzar? Did he have shorter supply lines? Did he have a larger army? He had a larger army, much more efficient and much more ruthless. He had bested him twice at Carchemish. <clears throat> So uh, Nico just did not have the forces or the stamina to withstand the assault of the Babylonian troops. Okay, now, verses 4 and 5 contain a motif. 
And as you skim, uh, skim those uh, two verses, you will notice that uh, God at the end of verse 5 says, I will destroy you. So this is a motif between verses 4 and 5 of uh, destruction. God is going to intervene and he's going to visit the Philistine nations with judgment and destruction for their wickedness. Now, in verses 6 and 7, what's the motif that we find there? Is it the motif of, I will destroy you? No, it is the motif at the end of verse 7 where the Lord God will care for them. So notice that we have two verses with a destruction motif where God intervenes for judgment against the wicked. And in verses 6 and 7, we have two verses in which God comes with a visitation to care for the remnant of Judah, as he labels them in verse 7. Now, we want to look just for a moment at that word care as it's translated in the New American Standard in verse 7. It can also uh, be translated visit. Uh, The force here is God intervening or visiting the remnant of his people for good. Uh, In contrast to verses 4 and 5 where he's visiting the Philistines for uh, judgment. Uh, for purposes of uh, calling them to account for their evil. You'll notice if you look over at verse 7 of chapter 3, that this Hebrew word, which is translated care or visit in 2.7, is translated in 3.7 at the end of that verse in the New American Standard, appointed. It is the same Hebrew word. And here in chapter 3, verse 7, The word intends for God to intervene once again in matters appointed for the good of his people. A visitation of God's care by way of appointing matters for good to the remnant of his people. All right, now, in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, this word in Hebrew has a positive meaning. It has a meaning of God's divine visitation for good, God caring for his people in a benevolent way, God appointing things for their good, as all those nuances of meaning. You turn back to chapter 1. In verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 12 of the first chapter, the same Hebrew word that is that we've been talking about in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, is translated punish. Punish. All right, so you're, you're up against the variety of nuances for the Hebrew term. But notice, in chapter 1, the term is used with a negative connotation. It's used three times with a negative connotation against Judah. I'm going to punish the guests who are consecrated. I'm going to punish the princes. I'm going to punish those who leap on the threshold in that day. I'm going to punish the men of Jerusalem. So God's coming or intervening for purposes of judgment is also going to fall upon Jerusalem and Judah. Is there, therefore, a subtle suggestion in chapter 2, verse 4? 
that Judah is warned that God, in punishing or visiting the Philistines with his just judgment, is not going to is going to treat the Philistines the way he is threatening to treat the Judeans. He's going to visit them with punishment, as he has also said he's going to visit Jerusalem and Judah with punishment in chapter 1. All right, now, that brings into sharp relief, then, the contrast between God's action in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and God's action in using this word punish in chapter 1 against Judah and Jerusalem, and then actually coming against the Philistine nations for the purpose of judging them, punishing them. We have then a paradigm relationship between these two verses. It is a reverse relational paradigm. From God's judgment in verses 4 and 5, to God's care and visitation for good. Taking chapter 1 into account, God's punishment, which will fall upon Judah, is also going to be mimicked or repeated in following upon the Philistines, but in verses 6 and 7, God will reverse that pattern and he will visit his people, his remnant people, with care, and with benevolence. He will restore their fortunes, the end of verse 7. All right, now that brings us to verse 5 and the second sheet of your outline. And the first hook word, which will recur in verses 6 and 7. And as you scan verses 5, 6, and 7, what hook word or what word do you see repeated in the first line of each of those three verses? Seacoast. 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 <clears throat> now, obviously, it's because the Philistine nation is on the seacoast. What nation is there today where Philistia was in biblical times. Israel? No. No. Gaza. This is the Gaza Strip. It's in your news today. Along the coastal plain of uh, the Levant is the Gaza Strip and the place of uh, recent conflict, of course, between Gaza and Israel. All right, now, what is the significance of this uh, concatenation, this re repetition of the uh, term seacoast? It is a rhetorical concatenation. It is like a little chain link fence. In other words, he is linking these verses together because of the geographical region. He is hooking them in the initial line of the verse in order to have his audience, his reader, follow the chain. Follow the chain of the rhetorical reflection. All right, now we're going to expand upon that in a moment. But first of all, he mentions in verse 5 the Cherethites. Well, let's turn back to the book of Amos, chapter 9, verse 7. 
And let's find out what Amos tells us about the Cherethites. And when you get it, read it out. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Arameans from Kir? The Philistines from Kaftor. Okay. The uh, word Cherethites there is a reference to the Philistines. So if you'll take your map number 15, let's take a look at where Kaftor was or the Kaftorim. You'll find it there in the Mediterranean, just to the west of Elisha. And what do we call Elisha today? Cyprus. Cyprus. So this is one of the ancient names of Cyprus. Okay, the Kaftorim in the Mediterranean. What do we call that island today? Crete. That is Crete, where the Apostle Paul left Titus. All right, so the Kaftorim are the ancestors of the Philistines, according to Amos 9 and other places in the Old Testament. You'll notice that there's an arrow that suggests that the Kaftorim moved to the coast of Canaan. They are a part of a migration of the Sea Peoples. Now, the migration of the Sea Peoples changed the history of the ancient Near East. It happened about the 13th century B.C., that is, in the 1200s, and it may have happened as a result of the climax of the Trojan War. So, those of you who have read Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, those of you who know where Troy was, where was Troy? As you look at that map, where was Troy? It's in western Turkey. Right before the, right before the isthmus leading into the Black Sea from the from the, from the Okay, so that that body of water just to the left of the L in Lud is the Aegean, as uh, uh, Scott has said. And actually above that L on the tip, just uh, below the uh, isthmus of the Hellespont, it's called the Hellespont. Uh, it's not the Bosporus. The Bosporus is the other one between uh, the Black Sea and the Bosporus Sea. That's where Troy was located. And as a result of the fall of Troy, there was a crisis that caused many of the island peoples to move. Uh, some of them moved to the Philistine coast, as we've seen with the Kaftorim. Some of them moved into the uh, uh, middle of uh, Asia Minor, oh, I'm sorry, of Mesopotamia, and pressed hard on the Arameans. Some of them moved onto North Africa. Some of them moved into Egypt. It was a migration of these population groups that changed the, uh, the, the makeup of the nations along the Levant. So, um, this reminds us 
that uh, these uh, the powerful forces that cause these shifts in population, people groups, movement of people groups, has affected biblical history. Bob. Nobody knows for sure why, but there was a general crisis that caused many of these sea groups, many of these island groups of the Mediterranean Sea, these sea peoples as they're described by historians, to migrate, to leave their islands, uh, even uh, the coasts of Greece and so on, and move to Africa, move to the Middle East, move to the Mesopotamian uh, crescent, and so on. What was the particular cause? Uh, no one knows for sure. There's a lot of theories about it. But the Trojan War is also seen as a part of it. In other words, the, detreat, the defeat of the Trojans by the Greeks and the collapse of the Trojan Empire, or what Troy ruled in Asia Minor, uh, created a crisis that caused others to move away from the, from the rising power of Greece, Greece potentially though there are no historical records for this, only the archaeological records where we see remnants of Cypriot pottery, uh, remnants of Cretan or, or Minoan civilization. You can see actually a, a picture on your map of the Cretan wall. That type of artwork of that uh, female there is Minoan style, which comes from the island of Crete. So you find these kinds of of uh, pieces of artwork, ceramic, pottery, etc., along the uh, coast of various regions in the Near East. And so they say, aha, you see, these people came from Crete. The Philistines had a particular kind of head uh, helmet when they went into battle. Uh, we know uh, how it was designed from its picture on the Egyptian monuments and the hieroglyphs and the victory stelas of the pharaohs. And we know that that helmet is also very similar to a helmet that has been discovered in Minoan civilization on the island of Crete. All right, so this crisis that causes this population shift brings the Kaftarim, or the ancestors of the Philistines, to the Philistine coast, as your map shows. Which means that when Zephaniah, in that fifth verse, uses the three names associated with the Philistines, including the name Philistine in the third position, beginning with the Cherethites and Canaan and Philistines. He's using a, another concatenation. He's using a, a chain link or a linkage of national origination, Cherethite, Kaftorim, national destination, Canaan, where they were headed, and finally, national designation. They called themselves Philistines. The sequence traces the history of their migration back to their point of origin, focuses the object of their migration, namely their destination on the Levantine coast of Palestine, and, and and specifies how they self-designated themselves after they arrived on that coastline. They were now Philistians, Philistim in Hebrew. All right. Now, as we examine 
this whole section of uh, chapter 2. We've already suggested that verses 4 to 5 as compared to verses 6 to 7 have a kind of pattern of reversal from God's visitation for destruction, I will destroy you, to God's visitation of tender care, I will visit you with care and restore your fortunes. So let's line up some of the vocabulary that the prophet uses here in order to indicate these patterns of reversal. Now, first of all, you'll notice that he talks about pasture land or pastures in verse 6. What's the reverse or the opposite of pasture land? Not city. What kind of land in the text? No, in the text. No, in the text. What kind of land? The seacoast, okay? So the seacoast is the opposite of the pasture land, okay? The coastal plains, you don't pasture sheep on coastal plains, okay? So <clears throat> pasture land, uh, the, the seacoast is opposite to, to pasture land. So that, that's the opposite there. All right, <clears throat> now he says there will be no inhabitants, verse 5, along the coastal plain. What's the opposite of that? Inhabitants where? Where do you see the word inhabitants? It doesn't appear in verses 6 and 7. But some word does appear that is the opposite of no inhabitants. The remnant possessors. I'm going to add possessors to that. The remnant possessors because they're going to take up possession of that land. And I want you to notice verse 13 of chapter 3 where Zephaniah once again mentions the remnant of Israel. Here he's emphasizing the remnant of the house of Judah. All right, so no inhabitants, and opposite that, the remnant possessors. Okay, now the Lord is going to visit or care for those who will uh, come <clears throat> to have their fortunes restored. He also uses that uh, same uh, language in verse 7 of chapter 3. We pointed that out earlier. What's the opposite of that? The opposite of coming to care for the for his people. The product of that would be joy. What's the opposite of that? In in the text. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, verse five. I am against you. The Lord is against. The Lord is visiting for. All right, cosmopolitan. What's the opposite of cosmopolitan? Rural. Mm, I've got that in the next line, so you can't use it in the previous one. Nice try. Pastoral. Yes, cosmopolitan, opposite, or the reverse of cosmopolitan is pastoral. All right, uh, Cheryl, what's the reverse of urban? It's the opposite of uh, of rural, rather. All right, I always spilled the beans. Okay, urban and the reverse of that is rural. Now, how about bucolic? 
Now there's your good Scrabble word for the night. What's bucolic mean? Yes. It actually comes from the Greek word for shepherd. Okay, so bucolic means pastoral. But here, I'm, I'm looking at a different uh, opposite. It's non-urban, and it's not cosmopolitan. I'm going to suggest metropolitan. Okay, the reverse of bucolic is metropolitan. And the opposite of dispossessing the Philistines, there's going to be no inhabitant there. The opposite of that is what? I will restore their restoration. I will restore their fortunes. You'll notice that in chapter 3, that is one of the last words of the prophecy. All right, now, we have these reverse patterns. In this four-verse section, there are patterns of opposites, but opposites in terms of reversal. Reversal of curse motifs with blessing motifs. Reversal of uh, seacoast with pasture land. Reversal of uh, pastoral situation, cosmopolitan situation with pastoral situation. So the, the reverse patterns are adjusted to the geography, the, uh, the uh, city, the nature of Philistine culture, and to the pastoral uh, nature of uh, Judahite culture. Right, so what's the prophet doing here? Well, he is suggesting the eschatological aspect of reversal. The eschatological aspect of the reversal of judgment with God's care and tender visitation. Now, how do I know that? Let's take a look at Jeremiah chapter 23. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 7 to 8. Chapter 30, I'm sorry, 33, I'm sorry. Chapter 33, verses 7 and 8. Notice what Jeremiah, contemporary of Zephaniah, says. I will restore the fortunes of Judah. There's that very same phrase that Zephaniah uses in chapter 2, verse 7. And the fortunes of Israel. And I will rebuild them as they were at first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me. That's eschatological language. That's the language of a complete and perfect forgiveness of sin. This indicates then with Jeremiah a transcendence beyond the destroyed land of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. It testifies at the same time in Jeremiah to a full and free forgiveness of sin in a restoration. Where can you have a full and free forgiveness of sin if not in an eschatological restoration? In other words, 
Jeremiah's description of what it means to have the restoration of fortune or the restoration of the restoration includes a complete declaration of forgiveness of all sin. That can never occur this side of the eschaton. Your sins can be blotted out, but this transcendent description is talking about something that is glorious in its future consideration and can only be experienced in an eschatological dimension. A forgiveness of sin which transcends the temple sacrifices of Jerusalem, which was destroyed in Jeremiah's day by the Babylonians. A restoration which surpasses a return to an earthly promised land. A restoration in which all your sins are forgiven in the land to which you return. The only land that satisfies such a condition as that is the land of heaven's eternity. In the nature of the case, this language demands a reverse paradigm, which is a regional transformation pattern. The Philistine seacoast transformed to pastures and sheepfolds. The result of this eschatological reversal is a land of peace, a place of bucolic rest, an arena of gentle and tender care where the visitor is God himself. God himself visits with his lush lush pastures. God himself cares for his precious sheepfold. God himself is the chief shepherd of this transcendent arena. Zephaniah's eschatology here in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, draws us to God the Lord, our shepherd. Draws us to God the Lord's lambs nestled in his eternal sheepfold. Draws us to God the Lord's land of lush green pastures. And our Lord Jesus Christ, he is the fulfillment of Zephaniah's eschatology. Zephaniah's eschatology of the shepherd. Zephaniah's eschatology of the lambs. Zephaniah's eschatology of the pastor, pastoral folds and fields of heaven's eternal region. I am projecting a reversal of transcendence here beyond the land of the Philistines, beyond the land of Judah. I am projecting, as I believe Zephaniah is, a perfectly eschatological transcendence the perfectly eschatological shepherd in pastoral fields for the sheep of his hand. Shall we pray?
We give you thanks, O Lord, for the good shepherd of the sheep and the invitation to be his lambs, carried upon his omnipotent shoulders, never to be cast away, carried by him in his own glorious ascension into a land which is like the eternal pastures of God. We give you thanks for allowing us to see Jesus in the text of your servant, Zephaniah. And so encourage our hearts with the accomplishment of the word of the Lord, an accomplishment initially fulfilled in Jesus Christ, to be consummated when the great shepherd of the sheep comes for all of his lambs and takes them to be with him forever and ever. Amen.